Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today is Danielle Evans. Danielle is the author of the story collections, The Office of Historical Corrections, and Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self. Her first collection won the Penn American Robert W. Bingham Prize, the Hurston Wright Award for Fiction, and the Patterson Prize for Fiction. Her second was a finalist for the Aspen Prize, the Story Prize, and the LA Times Book Prize for Fiction. She is the 2021 winner of the New Literacy Project Joyce Carol Oates Prize, a 2020 National Endowment for the Arts Fellow, and a 2011 National Book Foundation 535 honoree. Her stories have appeared in magazines and anthologies, including the Best American Short Stories and New Stories from the South. Danielle is also one of the Suwannee Review's new editors-at-large. Danielle, welcome to the Suwannee Review podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have so much to talk to you about, and I honestly could spend an entire podcast talking to you about just one of the stories in this really remarkable collection that I've now had a chance to read twice. What I wanted to ask you was how you feel about this collection, how you feel like you've grown as a writer, or think about your work as a short story writer differently. Because it is a collection, you're working on it for a very long time. And so part of the act of editing a collection is trying to reconcile the writer you were at the beginning of the process with the writer you were at the end. So the, the oldest story in this collection is actually Alcatraz, which was written before my first book was published. And then wow. the most recent work was sort of right up to the to the end of the process in like 2018. So it's a kind of wide range of me figuring out what kind of writer I was and then figuring out where I could put pressure on it. I think to the degree that there is a consistent difference between this and my first book, I think some of it is in structure. Some of it is in how I think about story. In my first book, I was really interested in a kind of story having a traditional narrative arc. And that didn't mean it had to be the arc that you would expect, but there would be kind of a moment in the story where something would happen that would kind of break it open. And that happening was usually in the time frame that the story was organized around. So even though there was still a lot of movement through time and interest in time in those stories, I think they had a kind of rising action climax arc, which I think maps really well onto a coming of age story, right? Because I think the anxiety of a particular period of our lives is I'm going to have to make a decision or I'm going to have to do something and somehow it will change the rest of my life. And usually the way that you think that you're making that decision or the way that you think that's going to go is not what happens in a story or, or in life. But the interesting sort of tension is in the crisis of of agency, right? The belief that we have control over something. And I think I was interested in these stories and what happened if I let go of that a little bit in those moments where there are people making choices and taking action because that's what makes it a story. But often the things they have control over are not important at all, not to them or to the story that the sort of active plot is just kind of there to mask the real thing that's happening. And so the the story shape is about where that masking can't work anymore. And the actual kind of heart of the story has to break through and come to the surface. And so it was a different relationship to kind of structure and agency and sometimes to time, which I think was partly about trying to let this book be about 
grief and, and other kinds of things that are not choices, but can define periods of people's life. And also, I think I, I was felt slightly more confident for a lot of reasons, some personal, some structural, some in terms of the, the larger literary world, writing characters who were not in control. I think I was very aware 10 years ago when my first book came out and I was sort of a very young writer of feeling like I had to write Black female characters who were their own agents or they would sort of be easily flattened or sort of treated as cautionary tales rather than people. And so I wanted to make sure that my characters were controlling some significant portion of their stories. And I think in this book, I felt for a variety of reasons more comfortable letting my characters be be vulnerable and be sort of sometimes at the mercy of the world. And that was a sort of interesting character space to give myself room to lean into. To my mind, the collection is in some ways like a treatise on the metaphysics of grief, on the structure of grief, on the gravitational force of grief, on the masking powers of grief. In all of these stories, and I'd, I'd love it if we could get specific about some of this, grief in, in many of these stories is not only an emotional process and a state of being, but it's it's also this very dangerous liminal space. Your characters seem in their state of grief to be more in danger of destructive behavior than at other times. And so I was wondering if you could talk about grief and how it exerts a force on these characters. I thought it would be really wonderful to start with Lissa in Happily Ever After, if you could set up the story and then we could start talking about that. It's the first story in the collection. It is the first story in the collection in part because it feels like the way into the book, like it introduces the most things that come back again, including grief and the sort of central mother-daughter relationship. So um, Lissa's mother has died a while before the story started. She's kind of I think she's sort of in a holding pattern, right? She has this job she doesn't like very much. She's ended a relationship and is kind of not sure what to do next with herself. She, um, She's just kind of there. She's refusing to go follow up on the doctor's appointment that she's been advised to go to, to sort of see if, if her mother's cancer was hereditary at all. She's just kind of refusing to make decisions about things that matter and in the intervening space, kind of making a lot of day-to-day choices. Let me interject. Her mother died of ovarian cancer, and the doctor advises Lissa to have her ovaries removed as a preventative measure, which is, I think, so decidedly symbolic, and we'll talk about that, but continue. I think that part of what was interesting to me in that story is that I'm able to leave the character in a place where she hasn't really made a decision yet. And I think that a story like that runs on sometimes just like the smallest trace of possibility. A story where nothing really changes for somebody has to has a, have a moment in it when you believe that it could have in order to work as a story, which is sometimes a kind of um, difficult energy to manage. So I was thinking about where the gaps come into the story. And I was also thinking about that story structurally in terms of time. You know, in the present action, there's this weird, like the place that she works is rented by... Um, a celebrity for this music video. And so there's this disruption, but also it allows room for for memory to intrude in various ways. And a lot of the story takes place actually in the backstory, which is what's constantly pressing on this sort of everything's fine. I don't have to make any choices. This is just me like going day to day, but the past is sort of 
constantly surfacing in the story every time there's a space for the present action to breathe. That past that is pressing on her, that is what I've, I've come to like to say in your story is kind of snow whiting her because she's in a way asleep in this kind of enchanted sleep is her grief over her mother's death is the decision whether or not to give up what is on a certain level, one of women's many superpowers, but which is to give birth, to bring new life into the world. And she, she's resistant to make that choice. What was interesting to me about the story also, and another aspect of your art that is decidedly new to me is almost the introduction of the fabular, you know, right from the jump in the story, you introduce the little mermaid and you introduce the Titanic because the place where she works is a, it's a mock-up of the Titanic or a, I guess, sort of a Titanic museum of this terrible tragedy. But at the same time, there's overhanging at this sort of like fable, which carries with it this whole idea of transformation. I was wondering, could you talk about that with regard to the story? It seems to me you're more interested in injecting these elements which fret the idea of realism on some level. Is that true? I think I'm interested in how we think about what's real. I mean, I should say uh, there are two replica museums of the Titanic, one right here in Tennessee, in fact, and the other in the Ozarks. And so (laughs) like many years ago, my first teaching job was in the Ozarks and it was like one of these when I felt just like inexplicably bad, but there wasn't a clear reason. So I had actually gone to the ER because I felt like I was going to pass out and I couldn't figure out why. But I seemed like like I'd walked myself into the ER and I wasn't in immediate distress and apparently all my vital signs checked out. So sometimes you just sit there for hours and hours because they're like, nothing seems obviously wrong with you. So unless you appear to die, we're going to ignore you. So I'm like reading all of that because I hadn't even brought a book. That's how I know that I was sick. I had brought nothing with me to the ER. <laughs> but um, I'm reading all of the literature of the ER, which includes this like stack of brochures for the Titanic replica museum where you can have a wedding or a children's birthday party. And I was like, oh my God, I have to go here. And eventually like they waited, made me wait so long that eventually I felt like I wasn't going to pass out anymore. I just went home without having seen a doctor. <laughs> But I tried for months to like get someone to let me take their child to the Titanic and have a fake birthday party. For some reason, no one would let me do this. Um, so I never actually went. Every time it was in Branson, and every time I convinced, I didn't have a car. I lived in the Ozarks without a car, which I also don't recommend. But every time that I'd convinced someone to take me to Branson, there was literally a tornado and we couldn't go. So I never saw this in real life, but it stuck with me. And it was one of those things, and this was like 10 years ago. And I was like, someday I have to put this in a story. But it's one of those details that like needs the right story. You know, you can't just like throw the Titanic replica wedding or birthday party <laughs> wherever you want it. So I, I sort of had it in my back pocket as like a thing that I would someday use. And then I was, I was supposed to write a piece of nonfiction for Roxane Gay. And she said it could be nonfiction or a short story. And I was like, yeah, I can write you nonfiction. And then as whenever I agree to write nonfiction for anyone, I began to cry because I was like, wait, I, the whole job hiding from my feelings. And I've agreed to like put them on paper. This is the wrong direction. I don't want to do this. So there we go. I was kind of struggling with this <laughs> Now essay. we're getting to it. And then I eventually tabled the essay and started over. And I was like, what can I almost give myself a story prompt? And I was like, let's just see what we can, where we can get with this Titanic. And I think eventually it got back to parts of the essay that I'd been avoiding, sort of made it into the story anyway. And I also think that, you know, someone pointed out in one of those questions that seems glaringly obvious when you're asked after the fact, but you don't think about when you're working on a collection, that there's like seven different gift shop scenes in this book. Um, where there, And I think there's something really, in, I mean, I part of it is just like, I love travel. And part of why I love travel is I love the sort of 
performance of travel, right? But I, I love a good gift shop, even like a corny, like I love a boardwalk. I love any place that's like, here's the package that we're trying to sell you of what this place is because it sort of allows you to to be present in the moment and also present in how it's lying about itself at the same time, which I think is always really interesting. But I, I think that there are lots of these kind of weird pseudo historical markers in this book in part because I'm interested in how we sort of commemorate a trauma or historical event, but in some way that is like not at all honest or interested in accuracy, right? That part of this sort of renewed obsession with the Titanic was ostensibly about like a desire to know more, but a lot of like the information that came out of that sort of 90s revival was not real information. (laughs) Um, And so I'm just like, it feels really curious to me in this book that's so obsessive about history and storytelling and who history belongs to, like where we invent a myth when the actual history is also like really fascinating, like where and why we decide to build a shrine to the story we needed and not the story it actually happened. You answered the question to a degree about grief as this liminal space, which is, it is on a certain level, a period of a kind of hiding. Not only is Lissa not ready to make a a decision, i.e. give up her magical fins, her ovaries, which seems like a final choice. But at the same time, she's she is making other choices that are heartbreaking. I mean, it is clear, for instance, that the love interest in the story, Travis, cares for her deeply and authentically. And there's that heartbreaking moment where she goes to the he's a bartender and she goes to the bar where he works and he's she feels tremendous warmth because she sees him with a woman that he's dating. And I don't know if you did this consciously. Did you do this consciously when he's helping her play pinball and she's he's helping her use the flippers? Oh God, I wish I had done that consciously. <laughs> did, did you notice no, that? No, now I get yes, it. Um, there you go, the flippers. No, you know, there was this, I don't usually <laughs> read reviews. Wait, but wait, wait, are you telling me for, you did not realize I didn't, it? I didn't do it on purpose. There you it go. was It was a late addition to the story, actually, that that line, but. Well, there it is. It sort of came in late. But yeah, no, I, you know, the Little Mermaid, I just sort of appeared in the story and seemed to make sense to me. And then there was this beautiful review in the New Yorker. I usually don't read reviews, but everyone's like, you have to read this one. And I did. Where the reviewer, I think it was Katie Waldman, um, wrote about The Little Mermaid as like a passing narrative. And I was like, oh my God, because because I was teaching a class on passing narratives. And I was like, how did I not make that connection? Um, But she sort of used it as a lens to think about the book. And I, I wish that I had been more intentional about The Little Mermaid because everything everyone said about it, it was like, yes, I, I want that to be why it was there. But maybe it was in some subconscious level. Well, I mean, it, but it, you know, it creates a field of meaning that's very much there. You know, you've got gift shops in this collection. You've also got water everywhere, which is fascinating because again, water can be a, an element of transformation throughout the collection. We'll get to that. It can be a safe space. And as with Titanic, it can also be a disaster. Grief also occasions in this collection a character's kind of revaluation of all of her values. So, in short, grief demands a character examine her past in order to come into a new relationship to it. I'm wary of saying like a truer relationship to it, so as not to be overdetermined by it. But I was wondering if you could talk about that on any level, about the way in which these terrible events which tend to happen in the background. In other words, they are exerting their gravitational force on these characters. 
the characters still find themselves having to, in some way, deal with that or be pressed upon by it. Which of the stories for you is an exemplar of that or speaks to that and how? I guess I'm interested in Richard Averett Gay Battle in Vain and Boys Go to Jupiter because there is this sort of reckoning that doesn't necessarily make either character make better decisions in the present. Oh, 100%. That there's a kind of need to to be called back to the past that doesn't indicate in any way that that self-knowledge is going to be useful in, in a way that's transformative <laughs> or positively transformative. And I'm interested in those moments, I think, because I maybe grew up in a culture of awareness, right? That if we could just like be aware of ourselves or be aware of various political things that like that would somehow transform into action. And I think like we have a generation of people who can like use very accurate therapy language to talk about the things they continue to do, right? And we have, oh, we sort of have the language for like the planet dying in the 90s and we, we watched it and like used the words the whole time, you know? I think there's something interesting to me about those moments when we like have all the information but can't assemble it or assemble it in some way that is not like actually useful. Like it's maybe usable, but it's not like transformative. The way that we sort of revisit the past to either have a narrative that then just becomes who we are as opposed to a map of how we could change or becomes a justification for continuing to either do the same problematic things or do new problematic things. I think that I'm also interested in always in fiction, the moments where kind of time collapses, right? That, that Especially in short fiction, because to me, stories are so much about compression that like often when you're looking for the place where the real story surfaces or the real question emerges, it's in a place where somehow like the past, present, and future got into the same paragraph, maybe even in the same sentence, that that's a place where a person kind of can't evade or avoid whatever whatever thing they're trying to look at in the story. And so I think in both of those stories, I was also thinking about time and structure, about where time would collapse or where we might have an interesting relationship to time in different ways. Rena pressed herself against the emptiness, flirted with cliché. Nights fucking strangers against alleyway walls, waking to bruises in places she didn't remember being grabbed. Though it had been almost a year of this by the time her sister was shot, her friends were happy to make retroactive excuses, to save themselves the trouble of an intervention that might only have been an intervention against a person being herself. So, more rough strangers, years she let make her mean. If she was not good enough for the thing other people had, who could be? If she did not deserve love, who should have it? If she could not find in a mirror what was so bad and unlovable in her, she would have to create it. She learned how to press the blade of her heart into the center of someone else's life, to palm a man's crotch under the table while smiling sweetly at his wife, to think sometimes concretely and deliberately of her sister, punished for a thing she hadn't done, while raising an eyebrow in a bar and accepting a drink from a man who didn't bother hiding his ring. All the things she was getting away with. All the people who couldn't see beauty or danger when it was looking right at them, when it had adjusted itself and walked out of their upstairs bathroom after tucking their husband's penis back into his boxers, when it was under the hotel bed covers while their boyfriend checked in on video chat. It was, if she is honest with herself, only because the circumstances were so strange that she didn't sleep with JT, that she didn't, one of those nights they woke up together, look him in the eyes and part her lips and trail her fingers down his bare chest and wait for what came next. It hadn't been knowing Dory existed that kept her from it. 
Rena thought for years that the meanness in her would be hers forever, except first, the hard mean thing about her started to sparkle. She began to advertise trouble in a way that made her the kind of woman friends did not leave alone with their boyfriends. Then, the rage she spent a decade fucking to a point softened into a kind of compassion. Men seemed more fragile to her now, and because it was impossible to entirely hate something for being broken, she forgave even those men who'd left her teary-eyed and begging for their damage. No wonder they had sent her off. Who wants to be loved for the hole in their chest when there's a woman somewhere willing to lie and say she can fix it, another prepared to spend decades pretending it isn't there? She was, she wanted to tell everybody, so full of forgiveness lately for herself and for everyone else. Her heart these days was a mewing kitten, apt to run off after anyone who would feed it. But try telling that to anyone who had known her the last decade, to anyone who had lived through all her, her tiger years and wouldn't hold a palm out to her without wanting the chance to be destroyed. It was a lovely daydream Dory was having for her, but if Rena went to Michael's door speaking of her kitten heart, he would only hear kitten, he would only think pussy. <laughs> Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. Richard of York gave the battle in vain, that mnemonic for rainbows, tells the story of Rena and Dory. Rena is at the wedding of Dory. Rena is one of these characters who is from a Midwestern town who escaped to the bigger, broader world and whose sister was horrifically murdered. And that's sort of the black hole of grief exerting gravitational force on the story. In fact, I'm going to have you read the section where we learn about what happened to her sister. It's such an incredible passage. And it's so apropos of what we're talking about. So Dory and Rena are a bit at loggerheads because Dory suspects that Rena has slept with her fiance, JT. And here is Rena, who has been, as you say, I think so powerfully fucking her grief to what is it, to a point, and it gives on to a kind of compassion. In the middle of the wedding weekend, JT bails. Rena is witness to it, kind of confronts him, urges him not to do it. And that in the morning that Dory discovers that her fiance has absconded, Rena lies to her and tells her that she knows where he's gone. And it's near enough to Indiana in Ohio that they can maybe get there and save the entire wedding. And they end up spending this really sort of remarkable period together. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about those those scenes with them together and how that relates to the way in which your idea of narrative has changed, the way in which the thematics of grief for you are just um, something you're so 
vigorously exploring. Yeah, and that story, I mean, it took me a long time to get the shape of that story, which is somewhat unusual because usually I write a first draft really quickly and it might take me a long time to get to a final version, but I can sort of see the shape of the story. And that story I had written half of and I couldn't figure out what the other half was for a long time. And I think it was because I originally didn't go into the story that interested in Dory as a character. And I think that I had to become interested in her and then let Rena become interested in her. I originally thought that the story ended with JT leaving the wedding. And I wrote that much and I was like, this is half a story. But I thought the other half was in the backstory. And I kept trying to make it work. And I was like, you know, this, you know, I'm just not getting like energy off of these people. Like I thought something would happen when I put Rena and JT in the same place finally after sort of all of Dory's bridesmaid intervening to keep them apart. And I was like, I finally got them in the same place. And I was like, this isn't, this isn't that. Like this isn't whatever she's upset about being at this wedding. It's not really this man. It's not that she's at this particular person's wedding. And I had to work backwards from that and think like, then why is this character so unsettled to be here? And I think I, in a more interesting way, got to a space where I was like, these are, both of these women are in some ways looking at the other in this space of anxiety because they're at that age where certain choices preclude others, right? Because they've made decisions about their lives that mean they don't get to be other people. And there's something kind of traumatic about that, even outside of the drama of this wedding in some way in which they're both at odds with each other for having made different choices and also recognize in each other, the sort of limited space in which they they have decisions to make. And that became really interesting to me. And that gave me the second half of the story and let me think like, what happens if I just extract these two women from this wedding and let them kind of spend some time together? Like, where does that get me? I think it got me closer to the actual heart of the story. What for you is the heart of the story? Because I do want to, for our listeners out there who are thinking about their own struggles with composition. I want to come back to what you said, but but what what for you is the heart of the story? I think it is both the grief over the trauma that's happened to, to her sister yeah. and also the grief of growing older while her sister's stuck and also the grief of growing older in general, right? The grief of like at a certain point every choice I make is another choice I don't get to make. And so I think those things feel very conflated for this character. But that's another aspect of grief that that whether you were wittingly or unwittingly exploring it is so present, which is there is almost like a ticking clock to grief. In other words, you better deal with grief. If you don't deal with grief, you could be, as I said, kind of snow-whited in a sort of permanent state of sleep. There is no difference on a certain level between Rena who is stuck in this state of grief and her sister who is stuck in this state of injury. Her sister can sort of just now barely recognize colors and has a rudimentary command of language. But Rena is only maybe beginning to come up with a language for her in her life about this terrible event with her sister. Part of what's interesting to me about that story is that it is in present tense. And I think you get a kind of interesting sense of where someone's unreliable about themselves in a retrospective narration because they can say it themselves or you can see the contrast between like what's happening and the narration. And it's a little harder in present tense to somehow get somebody who's not entirely reliable. And so there are moments when she says something about herself and then later she says something that sort of slightly contradicts that or recolors that. You know, the risk of that is 
you lose the reader's trust. So I was like, how can I layer this story in such a way that we get closer and closer to like an honest version of things and the, the reader understands that this is sort of the character approaching the truth and not the story changing its mind, right? Where she gives this initial like, oh, but it was like totally innocent when we were stuck in the other country and there's no reason for Dory to be anxious about me. And that's sort of like, and then we get sort of closer and closer to the context for that in a way that Rena can look at it directly. And it was interesting to me to think about how I could use a kind of real time, either a lack of self-awareness or growing self-awareness to get at that space between what Rena thinks is happening, what's actually happening, and to let that kind of open up a little bit um, when we get her out of the kind of bigger context and into a space where she's just talking to Dory. I'll say two things about that. Number one, because I was thinking a lot about JT and what his what his position is in the story between Dory and Rena, and in some ways, because Rena never fucked JT because she wasn't this black angel of fidelity and marriage. JT still gets to be the prince. <laughs> he still gets to be the unsullied. Dory and JT get to have the promise of a dedicated life together. But what's so fascinating about the story and what I love with the way you end it, and you know, I don't think it spoils anything for readers who maybe haven't read this collection yet, is Rena and Dory go to they kind of take a they take a detour and they go to Waterworld because basically at this point. Dory has given up on the fact that she's going to be able to save her wedding. During that time, they discover that JT is coming back. The day is saved. And yet, Dory and Rena don't go racing back to Indiana. They stay there together, like floating on inner tubes, floating on the water with this lovely state of them, just like sort of floating between possibly, in Dory's case, an irrevocable choice, getting married to this person who had serious doubts at the final hour. And Rena, who is maybe perhaps coming out of this state of a lack of compassion. Yeah. And I mean, there were there are kind of three distinct writing turns in this story. And the last one was the water park. And I got there and I was like, can I send them to a water park? And then I remember <laughs> the story opened with Noah's Ark. And I was like, yes, I can. Yes, I can lean all the way into that and let it kind of come full circle. And it, and it worked for the story. And I think that it, it made sense to me that they were both kind of in this space that felt like it was possible for something else to happen, but also felt like it was possible that nothing would change, <laughs> that there had been a kind of opening and revelation. And it was at least a sort of temporary reprieve from like, oh, we're stuck being these people forever. And I think that it's interesting to me that I think there are different ways that could go when they get out of that water. You said something really interesting in your previous answer, though, that gave our listeners a, a window into your mode of composition. I thought maybe you could speak to apprentice writers out there about waiting on a story. There's such an emphasis in the teaching of writing on craft, on this is how you approach things, on, you know, story structure. If you figure out X, then, you know, you're on your way to Y. Or if you figure out alpha, you know, omega presents itself. But talk a little about about these. I mean, here you are writing these, you know, short narratives, apart from the novella and the collection, and yet they take years. And so maybe talk about the passivity of art making. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is going to be a do as I say, not as I do moment, because I would not <laughs> recommend anyone like reproduce the process of the story. What had happened was I I just moved to a new place and and my mother had temporarily moved in. I had been living with my mother because she was she was sick and she had moved 
I thought permanently, but it had to be temporary because she wasn't, it just never quite worked. But so my mother had moved in with me and I, my mother died a few years ago and I love her dearly, but I was also a person who had lived alone for a decade and had been living with my mother for the previous year and, and been her primary caretaker and then had had a few months where we weren't living together and then she came to live with me and it was like not a very big house and everything was suddenly just like I was used to being able to like write quietly and at odd hours and I suddenly like couldn't do that and I couldn't really write in my office because it was also in a different way like a very social place and so someone who traveled a lot who I was maybe in love with but maybe mostly in love with the fact that he handed me his keys handed me his keys and said like you can use my house whenever you're, you're, <laughs> you're gone um I went there and it was like the first time I'd had like a, a day to write in months and I just wrote the first half of the story and I was like okay I'm almost there like I, I just need to it's half a story and I need to figure out what the other half is but it's it's close and then like like lots of things happened I sort of like lost the keys and couldn't deal with that person anymore kind of lost an ability to sort of think of that space fondly and so every time I'd go back to the story it was partly I still didn't know what the second half was but it was also I think like emotionally I was like I can't go back there like I can't go back to the place where I felt like safe and comfortable like in that space or with that person or it's just gone and I thought maybe it was just gone like maybe I just sort of lost that story to like the associative memory and I think part of the waiting was just I had to like not be mentally in a space where the story kind of reminded me of my own life I had to like give it its own room and so I think it was like a year before I looked at it again. And I was like, you know, I still think there's something to the story. I still can't figure out what the other half is. And so I just kind of slowly, like it would be the thing I pulled out on days when I was like, let's just write something. Let's see if we can get another page. And I get like page by page past the middle of the story till I finally got to that moment where sort of Rena's like opens up her own memory of herself. And I was like, oh, this is... And suddenly I understood what she was doing at that wedding and why it was unsettling. And I could understand the first half of the story better. And I could understand the first half of the story existing in a space that was more interesting than her feelings or lack thereof for JT. And that got me to a rewrite that was close, but I was like, it still needs an ending. And so I was able to kind of go back and like smooth out the voice and work on the characterization. But I still had no idea how it ended until like months later, I was reading it. And I was like, water park? Water park. <laughs> and um, and then it sort of made sense as a as a stopping point for the story. So I don't know that you could reproduce that or that I'd recommend you reproduce that particular strategy. But I think sometimes, I mean, I was also working on this story while I was in a new city and while my mother was dying. And part of why this book took 10 years was that there were months when I didn't write at all. And I that didn't make me not a writer or not a person who was working on a book. It just meant I was doing like things with my actual human life that were more important and also that the work wasn't going anywhere you know it's not like the story vanished into the ether and like the year I didn't look at it it was there and I think if something is salvageable you'll see it when you go back to it so I don't feel like anyone needs to have an enormous amount of time pressure on themselves to generate work like the work isn't going anywhere I've never read something and been like, you know, this is an okay story, but it would have been great if it had come out last year. But I read things all the time that I wish I might have cook a little longer. So at least that's the permission I give myself to to take space. I think the thing to maybe communicate to listeners who are struggling with their own work is just because the story isn't going anywhere doesn't mean somewhere else it isn't going somewhere. The only time it's not going somewhere is when it's gone, when it's abandoned and tossed out. But I loved listening to what you were saying about there's a patience with it. There's a there's a willingness to hold on. And there's just a belief that there's still some kind of there there. I wanted to also talk about a story which is near and dear to my heart from the collection, 
because we published it, but also because it was a story you were working on, I believe, when your mom was very sick. Boys Go to Jupiter, to me, is a story about, in some ways, waves and waves of tragedy affecting a character. But she is so far removed from any sort of understanding whatsoever about how grief is pressing on her, how enormous the gravitational force of grief is, i.e. boys go to Jupiter, Jupiter, that gigantic planet, which has 79 moons orbiting it, so many things orbiting it, it, it blows one's mind. And I still don't think all the moons of Jupiter are even named at this point. Set up for our listeners the story of Boys Go to Jupiter. And then I was hoping maybe you could talk about where Claire doesn't get to in that story. Yeah. So Claire is a white college student who, when the story opens, is like in her first semester of college and is photographed or poster is photographed and tagged on social media wearing a Confederate flag bikini that this person she's hooking up with gave her. And it becomes an immediate controversy because people from her school see it and they're like, what is this? And instead of kind of, it's not even a thing she feels particularly invested in, but instead of taking the moment to say like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have worn this or this wasn't actually even mine, she just kind of doubles down. And so begins this aggressive campaign of defending the Confederate flag as a symbol for for reasons that I think emerge in the story as, as being partly a performance for attention, but partly kind of tied to these various kinds of grief and resentment that she's carrying. And she's also, she's, she's really, she almost, she doubles down with a black student on her floor. Who's the only black student on her floor. Who is the one who's I think really makes note of the fact that she's so troubled by the shot. Yeah. So she becomes kind of very much the aggressor in the story while experiencing herself as the victim in a way that feels profoundly emotionally true to her. So there's this disconnect, but also it's another story where I was interested in the present tense and the present tense is a kind of, in a different way, I think, than in Richard Bjork gave Battle in Vain, the present tense is a way of indicating what a character doesn't understand about herself or her own past. And and she kind of never gets, it's not like there's a growing awareness because the whole story, both the past and the present take place in the present tense in this way that both freezes her in a kind of grief because I think that part of what I'm doing with that is saying that there's a there are these moments that she hasn't actually lived past because they're because they're with her at all times, right? The the grief of losing her mother and also the grief of this sort of other situation that we learn about later in the story where she's sort of responsible for another kind of trauma. But it's also a kind of avoidance of responsibility, right? The the present tense can work to freeze us in a place of trauma um in a way that is vulnerable. The present tense can also be an evasion, right? Especially when it's about things that did happen, right? That we could have some kind of reckoning with our commentary on. That to me is where there is actually a decided moral element to what you're writing. It's almost like what you're saying, which is so apropos right now in a culture that likes to talk so much about trauma, what I like to call like Rosetta Stone trauma, where it's like, this is the thing that happened to me and this is why I am what I am. But there's in this particular use of dramatic irony in this way in which because she hasn't come to terms with these things, it's not so much judgment on on the part of the narrator, but there is an implicit sense of like, you don't get to stay snow whited. Like you have to be your own prince and kiss yourself awake or else it's going to get worse. 
Claire learns exactly the wrong yeah. lesson, right? Yes, that it's exactly. not that she learns that she can, that she has to reckon with this, is that she sort of understands the way in which she can continue to evade it. I'm interested in various ways in this whole collection, in the, the space of the question of forgiveness and empathy. And I don't have like a clear, you know, if I had a clear thesis on it, I wouldn't have written a story collection. I'd have, I'd have written a nonfiction, which I, I don't do. But, um, but I think that, you know, there is this space where in fiction and life, we want to believe that people are better than the worst thing they've ever done and like have to create human room for that. There's also a way in which when we account for structural power dynamics, the people who pay for us giving second chances to people who've already done the worst thing they've ever done are often like the vulnerable people, right? Like, um, So like, how do you balance that? And I don't know that there's a, a one size fits all answer or, you know, a, a universal truth of that. I think it's a, it's a question we have to answer over and over again. Oh, wait. So, so, so it's so funny you say that about the one size fits all thing, because one of the things I thought about in rereading Boys Go to Jupiter, when I say it's near and dear to my heart is, again, because, you know, we published it, it was one of the more amazing ed- editing experiences to get to work so closely with an artist I admire so much and, and really look at certain moments in the story. All these fools sort of rush into this person's grief and project onto it so many different things, which is ironic because she doesn't understand why she is doing what she is doing. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, at a certain point it becomes a deliberate, it's easier not to understand it. Yes. And so I'm interested in the space of that story because I think people come at Claire from very different places as readers. And so for some readers, it's like immediately clear that she's the villain of the story. I think for other readers, she's a character that they want to emerge from this in some better or more complicated way. And so I'm interested in where you give up on Claire in that story and what that does to our sense of kind of what reading a story is for, because I do think she's positioned in such a way that I think if you read a lot of fiction or maybe just even like inherent narratives in the world, a lot of people are predisposed to understand like, oh, I'm supposed to be sympathetic to this person who's doing a terrible thing because there are all these all, all these complicated reasons why she's doing it. And I'm interested in like where that complexity is interesting and important and also where it's not the point at all, you know, like where her motivations are much less important than what's actually happening because of her. We have to wrap up now, which, you know, I, I knew this would happen because each one of these stories is a universe unto itself. This collection, it's not a particularly long book, but some of the greatest short stories I've ever read, it feels like it contains universes on a story-to-story level. So I urge our listeners to run out and buy it if great literature is something you care about. And I got to say, Danielle, that working with you over these last few years has been like one of the highlights of my career as an editor. I I really want to thank you both for coming on board as an editor at large, but more importantly, just, you know, contributing work to us. It's, It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for the edits and and all the conversations we've had about the work. They've been really useful. Thanks, Danielle. Thank you for listening to the Sewanee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Sewanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesewaneereview.com. To discover what's happening at The Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Sewanee Review. 
Until next time, this is the Suwannee Review, new since 1892.